1: My guest today, Carl Johan Kallman, was born in Stockholm, Sweden in 1950, which in the sacred calendar corresponds to the fifth Jaguar. Curiously, this is also the exact midpoint of the month dedicated to the Roman goddess Maya. His hometown of Stockholm is fairly remote from the jungles of Guatemala, but these were some signs that he encountered, that maybe he had something to accomplish there. He first became interested in the mayor and the calendar during a trip to Mexico and Guatemala in 1979. Here he fell in love with the people, and also had a profound feeling that this was his spiritual home on earth. And somehow it seemed that the purpose of his life was linked to these people and their calendar that he had now become fascinated by. And this was long before the Mayan calendar had become a matter of widespread interest. And as he subsequently read in Michael Coe's book about the mayor, that their calendar would come to an end in the year 2011. And in this, it sparked an imagination. His books, The Mayan Calendar, and most recently, The Purposeful Universe, have received worldwide acclaim for his work and research in this area. carl Johann Callumann joins me in this 2 program series, talking to his life and work, exploring the Mayan civilization and their calendar. Welcome to In Discussion and I am pleased to be joined by Carl johan Kallman in our second of the two program series. Karl Kallman, welcome to you today.
2: Oh, thank you so much.
1: We completed the first program talking about your return to Sweden around 1993. And you were putting into context and connecting the relationship between the Mayan teachings, civilization and cancer. Also discussing the energy shifts and the calendar synergies. That time for you, again, before we move forward, what were the differences in culture having returned back to Sweden
2: Yes, I think it was changed people I, I would meet. I think in, in the United States, uh, there has been, uh, since a long time, a group of people that are scientifically minded and yet are spiritually open minded, I would say. And that was not so easy to find in, in Sweden, uh, which is a, a, a very secular. Or, or if anything, it's a pagan society. And so people are much more, I would say, rational. Not rational, that may not be the word, but they they are more secular in in Sweden. I was very happy, actually, to have had that influence from a number of uh, spiritual uh, groups and people that I had been spending time with in the United States. That wasn't the same, to the same degree, the case in Sweden when I returned. How much were you
1: still involved in cancer research when you did return to Sweden? And is that something that you are still heavily involved in today?
2: No, it's not really. You might say in 1993, in December, I was uh, prompted, if you will, to start really working with the Mayan calendar myself. And what followed then was three years, I think, of intense uninterrupted research and working with the Mayan calendar. That was a very happy, very creative time. A time when understanding would just be coming to me all the time, new things to explore, and I was amazed to see how many things that could be put in a new and more fruitful perspective just by uh, using the Mayan calendar as a background. I did have some expert work in in cancer in 1995. I did return to a small university in Sweden in the year 2000 to teach environmental technology and uh, molecular biology. But basically, I I then, in 1993, my life took a new turn and the focus became on this of, of understanding the Mayan calendar what 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 does it have to teach us today
1: you were involved in the book mayo hypothesis with reference to the venus transits and the Orca islands could you expand upon that
2: it was really part of the, of my what shall i say the crafting of my path these things you mentioned maya hypothesis the, the maya hypothesis that i was the first book that I started to write on in this field was in in late uh, December 1993 it was like a sketch ideas were brought the, the the basic concepts that I would later come to expand on in, in all my later books uh, it was only written for a Swedish audience but there are as, as you mentioned there there are there are two things that play a big role in, in, in that. Uh, one is the uh, Venus Transit, and the other one is the Orcas Island, where I got, I don't know how to put it, maybe some kind of an initiation. Orcas Island is uh, one of the San Juan Islands here in, outside of Seattle, a set of very beautiful and, and very nice islands on the border towards Canada. Uh, when I was here the first time in, the, in Seattle, I was invited there, you might say, like my American father, I would say, a mentor who was a theosophist and brought me up there. And uh, it turned out that uh, this was a place where I would be given some further feeling of really having the Mayan calendar as a personal mission. And that, uh, I was given, I was listening to a, a workshop that a, a New Zealander by the name of Peter Balin, that I believe is still alive and pros- possibly in, in Los Angeles, was giving. And unbeknownst to me, it turned out to have a lot of interesting information about the Mayan calendar, and he had been a true pioneer working with these things in the 70s. And uh, he mentioned then the, the Venus transits as significant points in, related to the Mayan calendar, or, or you might say its, it's completion phase. And uh, here I felt I got some kind of a further uh, substance to the thoughts that I had had that the, the Mayan calendar, that's really my mission. And so this book became about uh, these matters.
1: You looked into and worked more heavily into researching the cosmos relationship, and that seemed to come later in this journey. What is the significance of that in terms of the way you built this narrative around the Mayan calendar. Why was it that that relationship came later, do you think?
2: Well, I think I always had that kind of a connection. Cosmos, it's the all, so to speak, and in a sense it's just another word for God, but a, a word that I think is better than God because it, it has, it's not loaded with all the kind of associations that the word God has has come to have. But... The, the Mayan uh, philosophy, the Mayan uh, cosmovision, is really about relating all the phenomena that we experience in our everyday life in a much bigger context, in fact, then, in, in a total cosmic context. In other words, it always brings us to understand that the events in in life, the events in human history and so forth, they are actually part of of a much bigger plan that is conceived, as far as I can understand, on a cosmic level. That is what uh, makes it so unique that it doesn't separate the everyday events from the um, uh, uh, big plan of the cosmos, I would say. I'm interested.
1: You're a biologist, very involved in cancer research how do you connect that linear scale between the galactic the cosmic center the solar system the earth human being and then the universe inside us biologically uh, in talking about the atom and talking about the universal infinity that goes beyond our body how do you look at that theory how do you look at the way that that works that that linear scale between the minutest detail in our bodies and the the solar system itself
2: yeah it seems to me that the universe is organized in a series of systems some would call it a nested hierarchy of living systems that are all connected, where what is a part in one system then becomes the, uh, the whole in the next system. And then it goes down there uh, in such a way that it's, it's always defined from above to below. The limits to what can happen in cosmic evolution, in all of its aspects, are always set on the higher level, on the level above of the bigger system, so to speak. And this is quite another uh, way of thinking compared to uh, reductionist science, uh, the way it's been taught for uh, since basically the early 1600s, where the ideal has always been to try to understand, for instance, biological matter in terms of its components, in terms of its biochemistry, or even smaller particles, uh, atoms and and, uh, electrons, uh, and so forth. But in this perspective that I'm offering here, it goes the other way around. I'm trying to, and I think I've been successful at it, to understand what happens, for instance, at the biological level, by looking at how we as human beings are in in, in a resonance, in a connection with with a larger system, in our case primarily than our planet, but then it goes up also to the galaxy that we're in, and then even further to the cosmos at, at large. And uh, uh, this approach essentially has not been very much um, uh, appreciated in, uh, in mainstream science. And mainly, I think, because once you come to see the whole of the cosmos as some kind of a creative force, it sort of goes out of the realm that science, as it is now, wants to work with. You know, I should add here that uh, James Lovelock, who came up with the Gaia theory, the, the earth as a living organism with self-regulating mechanism and so forth. He really was uh, quite uh, special in the sense that he was able to propose for once that there is a system larger than ourselves, that is it's somehow ga- governing what, what we are. But I've taken this way of approaching reality in a more systematic way and so there are other even larger levels that are part of how the universe is uh, created and evolves such as the galaxy and, and and the cosmos at large
1: is this perhaps a misunderstanding from centuries of traditional quantum physics that seems to only concentrate on energies things in the universe that are bigger than us rather than looking at every element every atom whether it is going from the cosmos down to the minutest thing in our bodies is that something that the quantum theorists missed that they should not look at all of them as powerful as each other on this linear scale
2: the quantum theory is, is one important aspect of quantum theory Uh, The way it was originally um, developed by uh, Schrodinger and Heisenberg and so forth is the idea of what's called entanglement. In other words, that particles, no matter how separate they are from one another, may still be interacting and be shifting their state, their energy state, synchronistically because There is some kind of a a relationship between them that does not go away. But the the way quantum theory is taught and approached uh, in physics today to focus the interest on atoms and subatomic particles. What I am saying here is that this kind of an entanglement is something that exists also between several different levels of the universe. They are connected on vast uh, distances, and uh, nothing in in the universe is is truly separate from anything else. Everything is, is a big connected web of different systems. This is a level that traditional science has not looked so much at. But, you know, I, I do want to mention uh, quite an interesting finding that was made uh, quite recently, I think just a few weeks, uh, sorry, a few months ago, uh, reported in scientific literature regarding this phenomenon of entanglement, which traditionally it's always been thought of, or only been proven to be a phenomenon that exists by two Different particles, so that they may, for instance, shift polarity instantaneously, even though they might, may be on, on vast differences now recently they, they made this new finding that even a system of four different particles can be entangled, and it, it may not see, see much. But the reason is that these are very difficult experiments to make. And to me, it's, it's still an exciting finding because it's, it's going in the direction to show that whole systems of uh, particles of matter, in fact, can be entangled, connected in resonance in an understandable way.
1: And how did the Mayan civilization, the scholars, look at that? Did they realize the importance of that interrelationship between the smallest things in the universe and the greatest things in the universe? Did they see it as a oneness?
2: I think when we try to uh, recreate uh, what the ancient Maya people were thinking, and, of course, we're only looking at their scholars, as you say, as, as their scribes and as some kind of an intellectual elite that was active. And, and it's very difficult, of course, to really say something. But we can say that, for instance, this whole idea of a tree of life, which is sort of a life-organizing principle that may ex- exist on several different levels of the universe, we can see... In the ancient inscriptions that they perceived of this as existing on the level of the galaxy existing on the level of the planet existing on the level of the human beings so we do know that there was such a concept that there was a connection a resonance between these different levels
1: we're entering into interesting areas Quoting from your book, The Purposeful Universe, on this very statement that you've just made. And if I may, I'll just quote this small paragraph. Even though Darwinism postulates descent with modification, no linear descent is ever strictly demonstrated in practice, and instead, more often than not, reference is made to some hypothetical common ancestor that has never been found. Nevertheless, the data that speaks against the linear descent of species cannot be ignored. The reason for the absence of evidence of such direct ancestral forms is not a lack of fossilized species, but that each species emerges in a distinct form as a result of a quantum shift in the cosmic tree of life. Now, this is extremely interesting and it follows on with this narrative. What was it that Darwin was saying that is opposing the theories around the cosmic tree of life?
2: Well, the central idea of Darwinism that evolution proceeds through very small gradual changes. That's uh, the reason that we find somewhat of a conflict here because if that was true you would in all cases expect that, you know, the elu- evolution, for, for instance, from monkeys to apes to human beings, that you could track everyone and uh, see how it, it sort of linearly goes from one species to another through small, uh, gradual changes. In reality, that's, that's not what happens. And there's always these gaps, And um, then the Darwinists will always say that we miss something here. We haven't found this particular uh, intermediate form. But uh, in reality, I I think they are not to be found because there are quantum shifts uh, that define the body plans of organisms. And these quantum shifts Delineate the morphology, the anatomy of species, and they do not proceed through small little changes. I think I, I, I want to take the case here, for instance, of how, you know it's usually uh, believed, for instance, that the whales, that they come from some land-living mammal that trans, uh, somehow transformed in, into a, a sea-living uh, creature. And this could never possibly go about through this slow uh, mechanism, the model where the gradual changes brings us from a mouse to a, a whale. And the reason is that in order for a, for a whale to be a functioning organism, it doesn't only have to have fins but it also has to have a certain respiratory system it has to have a certain skin uh, system everything needs to be uh, coordinated in order to, uh, and adapted to life in sea and it's only if there is a quantum shift that takes some organism like a, a land-living organism w- which simultaneously changes or transforms several different uh, organ systems of of an organism that it would be possible to have such a transformation from a land-living to a sea-living creature come about.
1: This is interesting because by 2004 you are now at the main calendar and the transformation of consciousness. And I'm leading this down the path of an epoch. We know that looking back over thousands of years, there have, as you said, been gaps in our history or even gaps for other reasons that we'll perhaps never know about. But an epoch that I'm talking about here and that many will talk about, Barbara Marks Hubbard's The Futurist talks about an epoch, Uh, Many scientists refer to this. Is this in context to that transformation of consciousness? Suggesting that the end of the Mayan calendar is pointing towards this transformation, or epoch we may call it, or even possibly a period. It could be a gap that... Is in itself writing its own narrative that we may not ever really be aware of, but we know that is going to approach
2: us. Yeah, that's a very interesting thought. Let me say that you know the, this uh, absence of of gaps in the fossil record that that is a problem for Darwinism. It's also uh, that kind of a absence or, or these kind of a. Quantum shifts is also something you can see manifesting in human history. Quantum shifts, you might say, is the birth of the Roman Empire and the sudden fall of the Roman Empire. Usually historians are looking to specific reasons for the uh, rise and fall of civilizations or cultures uh, uh, and so forth. But in the Mayan calendar perspective, it is actually a quantum shift in this uh, cosmic tree of life that brings these uh, changes, this rise and fall in civilizations about And more recently, we can track these kind of uh, changes also in terms of paradigm shifts of thinking. We can understand much of the development of of the world of of, uh, cyberspace, of of, uh, information technology and so forth, as being reflections of these quantum shifts that are emanating, as I see it, from the center of the universe. Now... These shifts have been going on since the birth of the universe. That's my understanding of of the Mayan calendar. They are still going on. Now, what will happen, uh, however, in the time ahead is, in my view, somewhat different maybe than what others would be saying. There are many people that are not aware of of, to what extent the shifts in the Mayan calendar actually describe these quantum shifts in human uh, evolution. So I look upon this approaching calendar end rather as an end to the shifts. I'm not looking for this huge shift that will be coming on a particular date. Uh, because I know that the, the shifts have been coming; they, be, they are the ones that have been driving our evolution. And ma- but now, when when all this comes to an end, uh, and the shifts that are guiding evolution comes to an end, well, maybe then, exactly what you're uh, hinting at here, there will be some kind of a gap, some kind of an opening where it is not just the cosmic plan that is driving and setting the focus of evolution, but it will be up to us to do that in a way that it has never been before. And it may come to take us by surprise, uh, mostly because we have been ignoring, I would say, to what extent our civilizational uh, progressions have actually been guided by a higher plan that maybe now is about to be completed and give it over in our hands to see where it all goes.
1: Perhaps the use of the word gap then is a tangible and useful one because if I place my historian hat on, we know how civilizations imploded and many of them imploded for the same reasons. and We have fairly good information to define pretty much all of them. What we can never see as we chart back is what it was that occurred to change that quantum shift, and I think that that is where I'm going with this, Carl. And interestingly, very profound statement you made at the end when i talked to barbara marx hubbard as a as a futurist and i uh, concurred with her that we are in an evolutionary stage now that is the rebirth stage we're not talking about the mayan calendar here but they all are synergetic when we look at it we look at it as a result of of the nuclear bomb in 1945. And now we have been going through this evolution ever since, and we are now at the rebirth. And many of these thoughts and theories appear to be meeting at the same place, at this similar polarity. And so that gap suggests to me in the, the, the ending of the Mayan calendar, It's perhaps not good for us to know what that event is going to be. It will be a narrative that we as humankind, guided by Mother Earth, will define over a period and it may be very chaotic, but certainly it's not something that we should assume and not something that we should speculate on. But perhaps when we write the history books in years to come, should say, well, we let it happen in its natural process
2: I think I concur with you uh, essentially when there is a rebirth or, on any kind of a level there is usually comes a point of uh, I think what you're talking about what I would call of surrendering basically and uh, letting whatever is, is meant to happen happen but I do think also that surrendering should only come after a lot of intention-setting, and actually also maybe a lot of action in order to have an intention uh, be be uh, manifested. But if it does come to the point where you, you just see that the particular road that you want to take isn't really uh, fruitful, then it is time to surrender. It is time to just let happen. And this is, uh, I think, is it, part of, of uh, Uh, most uh, rebirth processes.
1: Talking about the purposeful universe and the way that those stages occur now, we talk about this transformation of consciousness. We talk about that quantum theory, that cosmology, that evolution, a word I'm sure that that really began with Darwin. Is it in the Mayan mind process? that science and technology have to come together at this point to
2: create spirituality? I think what it comes down to is all, you might say, man-made walls between different realms of existence, between different realms of thinking to fall down. There are walls that we have in our thinking. I think we all carry these walls. We, uh, we, we have, to some degree, we have a wall between uh, science and, and spirituality, Th- there is the wall between east and west, there is a wall between man and woman, and so forth. And w- what it comes down to, I believe, at the end of the day, is that these walls will fall down. And uh, meaning a much more open space for creativity to take place, for new connections to be made. That I believe, yes, not only this particular one that there is a wall maybe between science, technology, and politics and uh, religions, but much more broadly than so. It it should be an opening for a new creativity, complete reshuffling of. uh, uh, human society
1: after your book in 2001 on the Mayan calendar you did gain an interest in eastern philosophies was that an awakening for you being able to put that up against western philosophies what was the objective there in terms of working out how the main philosophies and prophecies worked
2: Well, I think um, there was an opening uh, for me there, because uh, going to India especially, there is a living spirituality that is quite different from the much more sort of scripture-based Western uh, religious traditions. To me, these trips that I was doing uh, and may still be doing in the future, I don't know, to an ashram or a center in uh, outside of Chennai, it meant uh, reconnecting with a living uh, spirituality. In this case, it was interesting because the Mm -hmm. leaders of this particular movement also, for other reasons, had come to see uh, this year, 2012, as some kind of a deadline for their activities. And this, I thought, was an interesting example how, in our time, the philosophies or, or the ways of thinking in the West, and then I'm thinking about the Maya as a representative of the West, and in the East, uh, especially then in India, that they, they had unified on one level, and yet uh, their practices are, are quite different. And The Indian way, to me, still seems like a very living tradition. So it does, I think, to yoga practitioners all over the world still today.
1: We move on now in the last part of the program to the ninth level of the main calendar, that on your diagrams, you do show this in part as an elevation of information. And of course, relating that very much today to the Internet, That information that we're receiving what is that put into context with this final level is it telling us that the information that we have is in excess is confusing is part of the process that brings us to this change in the world
2: yeah it would seem it is in uh, excess the information I look upon the value and the role of the Internet in this context more as a connecting tool between people, even though uh, um, another aspect obviously is the amount of information exchange uh, that has happened. I also then see, my my work is a lot about to identify how these different levels of evolution of the Mayan calendar how they are connected with different aspects of our brain being active and setting their mark of civilizational character in each of these particular levels. And so I think uh, the Internet, which you may date, I think the best estimate would be late 1991, and meaning it is a part of the the sort of the final energy of the uh, seventh level. Uh, at that level, at the, as, as an example starting then in 1991, it really was very much still about the left brain half. In other words, information, textual information, r- a written word that was being communicated on the web. But then when the new wave starts, which is the eighth wave, starting in 1999, it really takes on a new character. And it becomes much more, it's not just about posting textual information, but it comes a series of different additions or developments that are much more about exactly what I've been predicting, that it's the use of the right brain that came into existence with this new eighth level. And what I'm thinking about here is that there's been sh- this shift uh, not only to post information, but then all these interactive forms, the, the wikis, the blogs, the, the Twitters, the Facebooks, all this is about uh, connecting people. And this is an expression of the, of the right brain have uh, ability to, c- to create connections. Rather than just absorb uh, textual information. And you can also see the shift taking place in a shift to visual information, to images, to YouTube, and these things, which is all about, again, about using the right brain half. So, in my perspective, this particular development that we are so much engaged in at this particular time ultimately comes back to these waves that the Mayan calendar describes and are expressions exactly of those particular brain halves and aspects of our brains that the Mayan calendar describes. Now, you may expect we're coming to another level also, which is in the ninth level starting March 9th of of this year. And that will be yet another brain activity that will be favored, which is the frontal lobes uh, activity, H- exactly how that will play out in the arena of of the cyber world, of the internet and so forth, I cannot tell at this point. I, I have no clear vision of, of what, what it would mean. But I do think it is clear that the evolution that will take place on that level will be based exactly on all this connectiveness that has been established in the cyber world between people all over the world in a way that has been completely uh, unfathomable for people only going back uh, 20 years.
1: The frontal lobe that you talk about could be possibly put into... Context with the third eye, perhaps, the way that you define this generally certainly has parity with your friend John Perkins, who joined you on the the bridge program, who talks about the eagle and the condor. There are different civilizations, different indigenous peoples, uh, different theories, different histories, different narratives that all point to this time as providing this gap, or epoch, as we call it. It seems to me that the Mayan were suggesting, however, that beyond those mechanisms that are man-made, like the internet that we talk about, that there are other energies from the cosmos. And they are suggesting, of course, as NASA Uh, indicating that in 2013 that there will be much energy coming out of the core that could disrupt communications. Did the Mayans connect this man-made third eye evolution or evolutionary process in hand with those energies that come from the cosmos?
2: Well, I I would say it is a conclusion that you must draw from the Mayan calendar. What the ancient Maya thought, it's always very difficult to to actually know. But as you're saying, there's a lot of different traditions that are, in general terms, talking about this. And John Perkins talking about the eagle and the condor, which is an important uh, prophecy among Native American peoples. It, it sort of shows, points to polarity that has been, uh, of, of aspects of uh, humanity that have been separated by walls, if you like. And uh, the, the same idea, go back to the Hopi, who used to have the idea that initially human beings were one-hearted, and then came the people that were two-hearted, and then The future still belongs to those that are one-hearted. And there are many general uh, uh, myths uh, around in different uh, cultures of our planet. But what makes the Mayan cosmology stand out, uh, and I cannot emphasize this enough, is the fact that these changes that were predicted by so many cultures, that they are timed, that there is a calendar that allows us to to verify the existence of these shifting polarities, how walls may be created between different aspects of our being, but also how these walls may collapse and create the opening for new mergers, for new unifications, for a state of oneness without any definite walls separating one aspect of ourselves to another. I always emphasize this, that the Mayan contribution is really unique in the sense that it, it is a time wise it's a time plan it's not just a cosmic plan it's a cosmic time plan and that's that's what makes it so fascinating and that's what allows us to actually create a bridge between the kind of heavenly energies uh, that you mentioned the cosmic energies and the you might say the, the earthly reality of 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 evolution of human evolution, uh, historical changes and so forth that are our very reality we're living. The the bridge is created through the calendar between heaven and earth.
1: And this is, I'm sure, in order, Mother Earth, in crying to us that we, as a civilization, as people must change for her sake. And then, of course, with that shift, us as human beings change along with these polarities coming together as one, whether we're talking in Mayan terms or in the eagle and the condor or or in any other types of theories. And then, interestingly, as we close I wanted to come back to your tree of life, which I know that we'll explore in more detail in later programs, where you talk about the DNA relationship to the image of the tree of life, this DNA relationship, again, can be connected up to this transforming consciousness to this third eye that is being developed through the information that we have created through Vehicles such as the internet, combined with the energies coming from the galactic core. Is that DNA relationship going to be the relationship that does shift us into a far
2: greater consciousness? No, I don't believe so. You know, I, I believe that our DNA is created in the image of the cosmic tree of life. There is uh, a template, if you will, on the cosmic level, and our own particular uh, DNA sequence is created in in the image of this. But I don't think that our evolution has that much to do at this point. I'm saying at this point, and I'm emphasizing at this point, with any kind of uh, biological changes that we are going to... Uh, Go through. I think we are pretty much ready, biologically speaking, and I think we have been that way for a very long time. But it's still the mental or consciousness component that needs to evolve, and meaning especially this shift to the frontal lobe of of our mind, uh, which is, you know, if you go to India and they want to say, what is an enlightened person like? They will emphasize that that's a person whose frontal lobes are the active parts of of, of the brain and expresses that in in all of his actions. And so I don't think this will necessarily require any particular biological change, including any change in our our DNA. So so I, I think it is more of something that uh, we can just bring, if we are, if we choose to live in accordance with the incoming waves, and uh, uh, which in this case means uh, setting the intention of uh, uh, manifesting unity consciousness and living in such a way that, uh, that we are able to do so. Uh, I think that is really what would be required of us in, in the time ahead. Do you think that the
1: Mayans realize that we do have an incredible opportunity ahead of us and that we all have to grab hold of and make our relevant choice points?
2: Yes, absolutely. Uh, I I think it's implicit in in their whole world view, that that this is it. We are the ones that we have been waiting for, and there is no one else that's coming. And it's also a huge opportunity to bring things right, uh, shift our whole perception of the world, and in so doing, start to create the world in a perception of the world based on oneness and and the unity of all things worlds coming down means great opportunity for creativity and new combinations to arise that we can't imagine at, the, at this point.
1: Carl-Johan Kalamann it has been a great privilege to share these two programs with you and I look forward to our future programs together.
2: Oh thank you so much it's been a great pleasure
1: and to our listeners today, I do hope that you enjoyed these two programs with Carl Johan Kallman as much as I. You can gain information on these and any other programs in the series at davidgibbons.org. Meanwhile, wherever you are in this world, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. David Gibbons in discussion welcomes listeners' comments and viewpoints at its blog at davidgibbons.org.
0: dot com.